You're listening to the Mental Health Download from the nonprofit Mental Health Association, Oklahoma. Noah, Tatusati Tatachik Stadiku, Hicks J, Jaisha Lyons Echohawk, Jahajakados. I'm Jaisha Lyons Echohawk, an intertribal two spirit birth worker, perennial justice seeker, community builder, mother, runner, and founder of Native Breastfeeding Week, hailing from the Seminole, Pawnee, Iowa, Omaha, and Creek Nations. On today's episode, I sit down with the Downloads host, Whitney Sapola to talk about Indigenous advocacy. Let's get started. The mental health download starts now. Welcome, everyone, to the Mental Health Download. I'm Whitney Sapola, Mental Health Association, Oklahoma's Advocacy Specialist, and I will be today's podcast host. We're going to be talking with Jaisha Lyons Echohawk about Indigenous advocacy. This season on the podcast, we're going to focus on how you can cultivate healthy minds for yourself and your loved ones, as well as for people living in your city and across Oklahoma. A key piece in doing that is advocacy. And Jaisha is here to talk about the intersection of advocacy with Native American communities. Jaisha, thanks so much for joining us today. Hello. Thank you for having me, Whitney. It's good to hear from you. You as well. So just to kick us off, could you start by telling us a little bit about the advocacy you do and why that work is important to you through the lens of being an Indigenous person? Sure. First, I'd like to just thank you again for inviting me to have this discussion with you. I'm one of many Indigenous advocates across our territory here in Oklahoma and beyond. I come from a lineage of advocates, whether they would self-describe that way, but it's just been something that is almost innate or inherent to who I am. So I have been somebody who kind of just is able to see the world in a way where I am kind of breaking things down and wondering, you know, like why or how do we do these things? And, you know, what's what's the context for it? And, you know, if it's causing issues or if there's some kind of inequity or unfairness, then yeah, then I then I'm asking those questions about how how can we, you know, make it fair, how can we make it accessible? How can this be possible for for everyone or more than just, you know, these select folks? And so my advocacy extends really to specific issues from my community as a, as a tribal citizen. I am a member of the Seminole Nation as well as a descendant of the Pawnee Creek Omaha and Iowa people. That's five whole tribes <laughs> that I come from. And I'm very um, honored um, to be in this time where I can fully represent fully uh, realize many of those ancestors' uh, visions that they had for me that precedes me. You know, some people say prayers, but specifically here in Oklahoma, I have been at the forefront of some of our recent Native voter or civic engagement efforts. We had been part, or me and a group of my colleagues were part of a grassroots effort to, as part of a larger national campaign called the Natives Vote 2020, which was co-led by Native Organizers Alliance and Illuminative. Illuminative is actually based in Tulsa, Oklahoma, I believe, led by actually one of my cousins, Crystal Echohawk. 
I was tasked by Native Organizers Alliance more specifically to generate the team and to generate our strategy in the effort to get Natives to register, to become informed about the vote in November, and to yeah mobilize various tribal communities across the state. I know that effort definitely precedes me in terms of, you know, how long people have been doing this. Also, you know, as Native nations, we have our own government, so we have always had some kind of election or or voter engagement. I will say, though, that Native voters, just like many Oklahomans, uh, unfortunately, do not turn out in large numbers as we could. And so that's why I have been part of this mass effort because of the lack of engagement is kind of like a chicken and egg where we have lack of representation in certain places and spaces. And top of mind for a lot of our Native community members was the COVID-19 pandemic and all the the consequences or the implications it had in various parts of our community with, you know, public education, access to health, access to housing, because in many of our tribal communities, we do have housing for our tribal members. Sometimes, though, in some of these communities, we haven't updated the housing or provided more housing. So you will get like multiple generations or a lot more folks living in close quarters, which is some of you know, people have researched or read that has led, you know, to more increased or increased rates of COVID infection, you know, especially in communities where we do honor, though, that we, you know, will live in multi-generational homes. And then I've also been a part of just women's representation in terms of leadership or elected roles. As I've met you, Whitney, through our, our new leadership experience, I've gone on to to have conversations or discussions or been asked to speak before panels on how do we engage youth to turn out to pursue leadership and what and, and even question what does leadership look like? Because as I had ran for office, I was definitely not the typical, quote unquote, typical candidate that had come from my district. And I did face a lot of adversity or barriers with my campaign. And so I wanted to take some of the lessons that I learned and share it out to the community at large. And then I've had conversations since with folks who, who come from overlooked or marginalized communities who identified with me in some way and wanted to know, yeah, wanted that information for what it takes to to kind of recognize the role that they have as leaders and then to reflect on how they can promote progress or change from that particular leadership position. And I'm not saying I'm the best advocate by any means. Some of these places I find myself in are because it's like, if not me, then who? If not now, then when? In some of these situations, there's an urgency and it requires, you know, somebody right now. And I do not want to be a gatekeeper of any kind if I'm the only one there. I've definitely been one to bring others of of either my same community or allies or or partners because it's it's going to take more than just, you know, one person or a handful of people. It's it's definitely like community work. Yeah, I mean, that is incredible. I have chills on my arms just thinking about all the advocacy work you've been able to do. And you have done so much, kind of the themes that I've pulled out from your perspective as an Indigenous person is really, there's not a lot of representation in government, in U.S. government, state government. There's a lack of cultural competency, especially when it comes to caring in the healthcare setting for Indigenous people. And 
I also got the sense that there's a lack of trust in institutions, which I think makes a lot of sense given the history of how the United States has treated Native American tribes. So I'm wondering if you could walk us through what are those unique barriers to activism and advocacy that you think Indigenous communities face? Oh my goodness. You know, Natos use humor a lot to kind of <laughs> cope <laughs> with discomfort and all the things. And so I don't mean to laugh to like in just to your your question. It's so loaded is what I mean. It's just like, what can I say? Yeah, um, that's a big yeah. question. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So from in my perspective, when we're thinking about barriers to to our activism or advocacy that we face. I think if you look at the most recent happenings in, in the national level, in the, in the broader level of society right now, and how unfortunately there was an insurrection on our United States Capitol, you know, it was January 6th. And, and the unique way, and I don't know if unique is the right way to capture it, but just the way that these individuals that came upon the Capitol and the kind of opposition they were met with, the force that they were met with was in no way comparable to what has happened to other indigenous activists or or protectors, if you will. I was somebody who participated at a really small level up at Standing Rock back in 2016. My partner, my spouse, and I drove up with a couple folks and our toddler, he was a toddler, our son, I know that my I had family who was concerned because we knew that the the actions between the water protectors and and the sheriff's departments or the 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 police force that was up there it was it was starting to it was starting to really come like it was getting more aggressive more aggressive than it had been and I think around the time that we went up there it was when it was just a few days before when the water protectors were met with what do they call those things? Rubber bullets. They were, they had the hoses sprayed on them, flashbangs, like a war scene. And a woman, a non-native woman lost her arm, like I think from her elbow down because she was hit with one of those, you know, non-lethal projectiles on, on the side of the, the police force. And, and none of the water protectors are armed. I think research to this day, I don't think there was any like weapons found. You know, and that's that was supposedly the the reason for these police forces to be so armed, like military style, military grade. There were tanks there. You know, we're indigenous people. The initial folks that were there, the the Standing Rock Sioux Tribe was there in prayer. It was women that started this. These young young women elders that were coming together in prayer and they lit the council fires and called out to their community. And then that community call was stronger and rippled out, you know, internationally, because you had all kinds of international indigenous nations that turned out, you had celebrities that turned out all to support, you know, a reasonable, (laughs) reasonable demand or request to have consent and consultation and the proper federal protocols in place in terms of this project, an environmental assessment to listen to these tribes and recognize and honor treaty rights, like legitimate, you know, requests. 
and 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 there was violence met these water protectors experienced violence some of them were arrested and some of them were were, were actually imprisoned for for years faced felonies now we don't know the um ripple effects of you know what happened at the capitol that was a clear insurrection there were people that had zip ties you know they were made threats to, you know, a variety of elected leaders, including the then vice president of the United States. And so it's like such a stark contrast, especially when you see some of these police, I don't know exactly who they were, but they were police forces there at the Capitol that removed barriers, you know, letting these people in. And you see people actually like, you know, there's, you know, research there now, or I mean, I mean, not research, the facts are out that, you know, police were, one police passed, police were harmed they you know they were they were engaged in fighting and raising up these two situations is to bring up the prejudice that the way that native people are seen and then to even just talk about just how we are represented in the media in fact I'll lean on my my cousin's research she leads illuminative and illuminative has done extensive research on the impacts of media representation of Native people to to the public, to Native people themselves and to non-Native people. And there's been all kinds of research by psychologists or, or researchers that are, that are in that particular field that precedes this survey, but that shows almost similar, similarly that Native mascots in sports teams have definitely given way to people's perception of Native people in that they don't view us as full humans. We are caricatures or we're reduced to, to, to stereotypes where, you know, somebody might see me and think I'm like, just the way I would disagree is aggressive versus just me disagreeing. So there's a lot of the way people even perceive us that are not Native, in addition to ourselves sometimes, where we, yeah, don't recognize our own full humanity. So how could we be praying? How could our way of praying be seen as valid? How could our concerns for paying be valid? Our concerns of injustice happening in our communities be seen as valid when there are other you know, parts of the way we're seeing that is more visible or largely shared in the continued perpetuation of our dehumanization. And I say that because the Kansas City Chiefs are playing in the Super Bowl and they've got such horrible representation of supposedly native nations you know they're called the chiefs they have their fans who wear the headdresses or they paint their faces and they've got some supposed chop that they do called the tomahawk chop that is supposed to be like reflective of who we are which is not true it is so false and so detrimental yeah. I mean, you just highlighted a ton that I think is incredibly important. Like indigenous people rarely get to, they don't get to tell their own narratives. It's put on them and usually they're inaccurate representations. 
I like that you mentioned the water protectors. I think a lot of people have been making comparisons on the insurrection at the Capitol with the Black Lives Matter protests, just because that's been more proximate time-wise. But I think that a lot of people could look at that and see, hey, <laughs> one of these instances doesn't look like the other. So you've outlined some really, really good points about the barriers. And now I would be remiss since this is the mental health down podcast, not to specifically ask about mental health. You do so much because there are so many issues that intersect with Indigenous communities. What can advocates do to protect their own mental health? I think even if it's not Indigenous issues, I think like when when you are somebody that is just, you know, working in these respective situations that have, you know, like uh, so many mountains, like a whole mountain range that you have to scale to, to try to get to, you know, the other side, I guess, so to speak. Yeah, it can be really taxing and toiling. I think, you know, like we've all been in that right now during this pandemic and then the social uprisings of this last year. Many of us that come from marginalized communities, especially communities that have long dealt with racism because of the way we look, we're brown or we're black, have known, you know, known these things have been happening for for our entire lifetimes. And we may not be that old or, we, you know, maybe, you know, and even we have like our relatives, our older relatives who can tell us the same thing. And I think it's really important and something that I found and I had to sit with for 2020 because, yeah, it was up and down for me, too, at times is, you know, just trying to find that balance for yourself and knowing your boundaries. I think that is for me what I've, I've been able to I'm not the greatest at, but I've been able to pinpoint is if I exceed my boundaries, then I'm definitely running myself dry. I'm exhausted. I'm not at my best uh, for anybody or anything. And it can be really devastating and impactful where, yeah, you not just get worn down, like mentally or emotionally exhausted, you know, you can get physically exhausted, like it all adds up stress can kill you. I mean, and when your, you know, immune systems are, you know, not peak in this time, unfortunately, you, you know, could pick up illness more easily, more susceptible to illness. So I definitely think just making sure that you can understand your limit. Nobody can limit you, but you can limit yourself. So just recognize that, that you can set those, those boundaries that are kind of like a check-in for yourself. I definitely feel that we should all be outside at least once a day. <laughs> However, you need to to get some vitamin D naturally, just to just kind of, you know, breathe in that moment, take a moment to just kind of ground yourself where you're at and just be patient, I think are kind of like simple self checks for, you know, to just yeah, stay grounded, be present and not be critical of like all the things you are stepping away from at that moment. Like that's a moment for yourself to just breathe, drink OA or water. Water is life. It's medicine. I know this time is really lonely for those of us that don't have, you know, like maybe you don't even have a roommate. You're just living by yourself. Maybe you have like a higher risk if you got a COVID. However, I think that it's still important to keep in touch with, with the circle that hopefully you've been able to acquire or continue to try and acquire those relationships that people 
will will hold you accountable to yourself, to them, and will celebrate you all the same, regardless of, you know, whatever it is you do, just by being you and who you are. I know that's something that that community that I've, I've welcomed, especially, you know, coming into this year is, is, has been everything for me. I mean, we don't talk about all the time, everything that's going on. It'll be memes we share back and forth or, you know, we found something funny and thought of, you know, this person. So we send it or just taking a moment to just cry. Like the other day, I was just having a day and I just needed somebody to hear me and, and not tell me what to do. And it was, it was wonderful. It was so cathartic because it's hard. It really is. It's just so hard just to even just exist right now. I think it's great though, because what you point out the theme I took from everything you said is that you're not alone in this work, whether that's taking some time to be outside or connect with your support network, like the individual can't do much, but as part of a larger network and entity, a lot more is possible. So I think you're spot on and appreciate your suggestions. Then the last question I want to ask you, and this is a bit of a, we know it's not possible, but it's fun to imagine. So if you could wave a magic wand to improve just overall well-being and mental health for Indigenous people in Oklahoma, what would you do with that magic wand? If I had a magic wand to improve the well-being of Indigenous people in Oklahoma, yeah, oh boy. Man, that's, it's really, yeah, it's really, I just would want, yeah, for us to be fully realized. And what I mean by that, I think it encompasses so much, like, for Indigenous people to be fully seen, for even within ourselves to fully see our own people, because we are also, like, our tribal communities are also wrought with the effects of colonization and patriarchy and homophobia and bigotry and you know, I feel like, you know, if we're fully realized we have basically we're unlimited in our potential of what we can do and what we will do when we can just exist as who we are, then we are, you know, then we're recognized and affirmed. And, you know, that's what I would want for anybody, (laughs) you know, not just our indigenous people. Coming into my own identity still, I have started publicly recognizing myself as two-spirit, which is to be simple and, and, and just call it, you know, for, for some people it is about sexuality, for some people it's about the role you play in community, and then I think altogether it's, it's, it's about being able to hold space for the masculine and the feminine presence or energies, and, you know, maybe some people call that non-binary some people you know but again it's it's just it's 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 yeah not um not seeing the world and in, in in such a uh, dichotomous way and it's been a challenge to really to really say that out loud but once I recognized and affirmed that within myself even though I'd once I said it out loud and once I was I I came to it it had always I've always been I, it's my whole life <laughs> everything that I've done, all these signs that I've seen, it just made sense. And so, yeah, that's, that's the one that I would, that's how I would wave it (laughs) to be fully realized. 
That's beautiful. Well, as we close things out, I just want to thank you for giving us this time to educate both me and our audience. And I want to leave you with one last opportunity uh, to speak any last bits of wisdom. So if you have any specific thought or call to action, what do you want to leave our listeners with? Oh, well, I appreciate, again, all this time we spent today and letting me ramble as I navigated my thoughts with you. And I I think if nothing else, you know, just to come back to the fact that we're not alone, we really aren't. A lot of this work precedes us and it is generational. So it won't be instantaneous. It'll be enduring. And so we have to make sure we're nourishing ourselves for that, for that, you know, time that it's going to be much longer than maybe we thought. And then just, yeah, to have some grace within ourselves to know that, you know, we're doing, you know, the best we can. We really are. And take it, you know, moment by moment. 